quiet our hearts so we can pray and then turn to his word and listen to him. Indeed, Lord, we, our hearts still cry, holy, holy, holy. For you are holy, which means you are beautiful, which means you are pure, which means you are good, which means you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. Everything about you is holy. Your love is holy. Your word is holy. Your judgment is holy. Your mercy is holy. The ways in which you work in the world, all of them, holy. And so we cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because you're holy, we quiet ourselves in your presence. We come not trifling, and distracted, but captivated by your greatness. Hearts and ears open to hear you speak to us. And so our holy and only wise God, speak for your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been an interesting week. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm living in this fog of unreality. Sometimes I feel like the things I'm watching and the things I'm hearing can't actually be real, can't actually be happening. It all seems like a strange, terrible dream. But college campuses are the real world. Quiet college towns and quiet streets are the real world. Twitter is the real world too. I mean, talk from a president of fire and fury and being locked and loaded when it comes to nuclear war, that's real talk. No, my eyes and ears couldn't quite believe it. Evangelical pastors on major news outlets defending the president's rhetoric by saying the Bible gives President Trump the moral authority to take out other leaders any way he chooses, whether by assassination or nuclear war. I can't believe I'm hearing that. But that's the real world, too. In fact, the real world is the only world we inhabit. And we inhabit it together, beloved. Here's the thing. Not only are all those things, those disturbing things, those uncomfortable things, those sometimes dark things real, but so is Jesus. As ugly and reprehensible as the world can sometimes be, the truth is, and the beautiful thing is, Jesus is real too. Jesus Christ inhabits the world, this real world. He really lives in it through you and I, through his people, through his church and his spirit. Indeed, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, is more real than the world we're in. He will outlive the world. 
The real Jesus inhabits the world, and yet real people do not really believe in him. The world looks on the church with a fog of unreality. Where is your Jesus, they ask. What does your Bible say about nuclear war, about petty dictators who assassinate their family members, and about democratically elected bullies? What what, what difference does Jesus make if the people bearing the crosses claim to represent him? And if Christians are honest now, we must sometimes ourselves admit that we feel the kind of unreality about Jesus too about the church, about the gospel. And so sometimes we must pray as that famous man in the Bible prayed, Lord, I believe, help my what? Unbelief. Sometimes we must admit that there are things in the world we simply don't know how to fix, like racism, like white supremacy, like the sinful anger in response to racism and white supremacy. There are many things in this real world that are real problems with real people. And they prompt real questions. The question we might then ask is, in the midst of all of this, how can we be real Christians? How can we be real Christians? If you want to sort of boil this sermon down into sort of one thought, here, here it is. Real Christians give wise answers to hard questions faced by the outside world. And real Christians, according to this text, there's more that we could say about real Christians, but according to this text, real Christians give real answers, wise answers, to the hard questions faced by the outside world. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to sort of unpack that by looking at verses 5 and 6. And suggesting, here's the outline, that real Christianity that gives wise answers has four aspects, four sort of elements to this real Christianity. Number one, there are actions. Number two, there are attitudes. Number three, there's an audience. And number four, there are aims. The actions, attitudes, audience, and aims of real Christian witness, according to Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Look there with me as we read God's Word. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's read again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, these two verses, I think, in many ways, structurally, are kind of parallel. They include all the same elements. Those four elements I just gave you a moment ago. They both refer to an action. They both refer to an attitude. They both refer to an audience. And they both refer to an aim. And we want to sort of see that as a kind of composite picture of God's call on our life in our troublesome time. And trust me, beloved, every generation of Christians lives in troublesome times. 
Every generation of Christians live in times where the world's asking questions and needing answers. And the responsibility that falls upon every generation of Christians is to bear witness to Christ and his truth in their time that the world that's lost without answers might hear, might see, might believe, and be saved. So the first thing we want to consider here is the actions. Verse 5 and 6 each give us an action, two actions, walking and talking. See there in verse 5, walk. Verse 6, let your speech. The Bible uses the word walk as a metaphor or a a symbolic way of describing the whole pattern of a person's life. So when we talk about somebody's walk, we ain't talking about whether or not they got a little dip, you know, whether or not they, whether or not they got a little pimp going on, a little swagger. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about everything that person sees, thinks, does with their life. That is their walk. Paul used that phrase earlier. If you look back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, there the apostle Paul is praying for the Colossians. And he says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, notice, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul has that very idea in mind now when we come to Colossians chapter 4 and he says walk in wisdom. He's, he's talking about the very things he's prayed for them back in verses 9 and 10, that the habit, the conduct, the course of their life would be in keeping with their profession as Christians, would be fully pleasing to the Lord and would bear fruit in every good work. That's God's call upon our life, Christian. We would live this way in a way that pleases him, in a way that is consistent with our profession of faith in him, and in a way that bears fruit that remains to the glory of his name. And so when we come to Colossians 4 verse 5, Paul is asking us to look at the sum total of our life, our walk. But now he also says, he refers to another action there, and that is our talk. In a similar way that walk refers to the whole life, the word that Paul uses here for speech refers to all of our speaking. He's referring not just to when we are doing sort of formal presentations like I'm doing right now or or formal declarations of the gospel, but he's referring also to our casual conversation with neighbors and people we bump into in the grocery store. All of our speech is in view. Every word we speak, every way in which we use our tongue, Paul is sort of saying, hey, you've got to walk this thing and you've got to talk this thing. So true Christian living concerns itself with word, all words, and with deeds, all deeds. If we do one without the other, then we're really sawing our witness in half. We're really dividing what is meant to be joined together in one life. So it's possible that we may walk in a wonderful way be tremendously good people in in so many ways. But without speech, no one will know that Jesus is the reason we live the way we do. It takes words to give context and meaning to our actions. 
Or we may talk a good game. We may talk a lot about Jesus, but without a Christ-like walk, no one will believe what we're speaking. We may undo all of our preaching and all of our evangelism with the way we live. Confusing the message, undermining the message, controverting the message. Every generation of Christians faces the temptation to cut itself in half by either emphasizing walking or talking. So there are many Christians in the world who place such great stress on doing good for neighbor and loving others and give so little speech to the gospel itself, you are rightly left to wonder whether they believe the gospel. And there are many Christians in the world who are so precise and exacting about the words they speak and the theology they communicate and the truth they communicate as they ought to be. But their lives demonstrate so little fruit in keeping with the truth of God, with the whole counsel of God, that you are also, you may be forgiven for wondering if they too believe the gospel. These things belong together, beloved, in a seamless whole, in one fabric, one design of both life and lip, above walking and talking, of doing and declaring. That's a whole Christian witness. The more challenging the times, beloved, the more critical it is that Christians, that we hold these two actions together in an unbreakable bond in Christ. So if we're going to be bearing witness in our day, let us not just talk a good game. Let us live well. And let us not just live well. Let us explain it too. And so we go from these two actions to considering the two attitudes that are in verses 5 and 6. He calls our attention in verse 5 to wisdom. Walk in wisdom. And in verse 6 to graciousness. Let all of your speech be gracious. So first, Christians are to walk not just any kind of way, but in wisdom. And again, back in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, that's precisely what he prays for them. They might have an understanding of God's will in all spiritual wisdom. It is this wisdom that is to define our attitude as we live for Christ. We must live wisely. What does that mean? Well, in wisdom means according to God's wisdom. Not the wisdom of this world. That is critical, beloved, because God's wisdom is not just a form of wisdom in a cafeteria or a buffet line full of other equal kinds of wisdom. God certainly doesn't see it that way. So in Isaiah 55, verse 9, you will know these words quite well, where the Lord speaks, he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, ain't no comparison. Your little thoughts down there on earth, my thoughts way out there in the heavens. You know how big the heavens are? They are infinite as far as we know. So as far away as infinite is from earth, that's how far away my wisdom is compared to yours. And this is is vital for us to try to remember in times of bearing witness. 
Because it's really, it's really easy for me. I assume you, this is what preachers do, right? We talk about our problems like they're yours. It's really easy for me to assume that the things I'm thinking are right and wise. We're not often in the habit of second-guessing ourselves. And even when we're dedicated to the Bible, we're often in the habit of assuming the Bible, what we know the Bible to say, rather than coming freshly again to the Bible to verify and be challenged again. But if we would live the way God would have us live, we must live by his word, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is life. This is wisdom. Not by man's wisdom. Listen, beloved, any Christian living according to human wisdom and precepts actually lives beneath their inheritance and beneath their dignity as the sons and daughters of God. Any Christian living according to man's wisdom lives, as Paul says early in Colossians, in slavery. Look with me at Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is Paul's concern for that church, and this is God's concern for us. He says, see to it that no one takes you what? Captive by what? Philosophy. That's a word that, that literally translated means the love of wisdom. The love of human wisdom. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's a real slave trader out there looking to grab Christians and, and to bring them into bondage to ideas that, yes, they are wise in the human tradition or they are wise according to the world, but they have nothing to do with Christ. They are not according to Christ. We want to live according to Christ. We want to live according to him, according to his wisdom, according to his pattern and his instruction and his command. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, God made Christ to be wisdom for us. He is our wisdom. Acts 17, 28, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So in this terribly dark and destructive world, Christian, you must not look to the world to define your behavior, your walk, to give you its wisdom. It will gladly do so. But it will at the same time be shackles and manacles enslaving you. We must not settle for human tradition and worldly wisdom. We must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, this seems obvious, doesn't it? But let me ask you, is it easy? It's not, is it? There's so many things trying to take our eyes off of Jesus that it takes great spiritual strength and focus and discipline to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus until he comes. In a real sense, this is the most basic aspect of our spiritual warfare. This is the most basic struggle in our attempt to live for Jesus, is to keep our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. In a world that's always handing us dainties and delicacies and, and bright lights and, and promising us so many things apart from Jesus or in addition to Jesus in order to take us away from Jesus. But to walk in wisdom is to keep our eyes locked on our Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, while we bear witness, while we behave in this fallen world. 
all of our walking is really wandering unless our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Now notice the second attitude, not only to walk in wisdom which comes from God's word, but secondly, Christians are to speak graciously seasoned with salt. The word translated graciously could be translated as either grace or graciously. And so Paul could be saying here to always talk about grace, which is to say to always be talking about the salvation that we have in Christ. Or he could be saying always talk graciously, the way the ESV and some other translations render it. For our purposes, both meanings are relevant. We should speak of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the grace that saves sinners from the coming judgment of God. And we should speak graciously or kindly. Let me stress something obvious here. In this text, and in so many other places, notice that God commands us to speak. We're the only part of creation that can. And so all of our speech has this phenomenal power of imaging forth the mind and the will and the heart of God. But he doesn't call us as his witnesses, as the word witness implies, to be mute. There is no Christian version of pleading the fifth. There's no Christian Switzerland, no neutral country, where we abstain from the conflicts of the world. We are in the world, but not of it. And part of what that means is obeying our captain, we must speak for him and speak in ways that reveal his character. We must use words to communicate the gospel. We must speak to the questions and issues of our day. Not all of them, all the time. There's wisdom in knowing when to speak and when not. But a complete abdication of speaking the truth of God into the world is a complete abdication of our call as disciples. We must speak. And so we have other texts of Scripture that come to mind. For example, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, where uh, the writer of Proverbs says there, open your mouth for the mute. In other words, speak for those who can't speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Verse 9, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. It's very clear. We could add texts like Isaiah 117 and others where, where God expects his people to be sort of standard bearers and to be preachers or proclaimers who, who open their mouths to declare his truth, his way, especially on behalf of people who are being trampled by this world. So Christians, we must speak up, but we must speak well. Graciously. What a great tragedy is when Christians speak of God's kindness without speaking kindly. I like the way Matthew Henry put it. Though it be not always of grace, it must always be with grace. The subject may not always be the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But whatever we're talking about, we must speak with that grace that comes from God. In Jesus Christ. Notice in the text, verse 6, the word always. The command reads, not let your speech be gracious, 
let your speech always be gracious. Uh, This means for the Christian, there is never a time when he or she has permission to not be gracious. Isn't that what always means? Always, always means always. (laughs) Ephesians 4.29 puts it this way. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Zero tolerance for corrupt speaking. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouths. And a a perfect demand for edification in speech, but only such as is good for building up. That's our standard. It's a gold standard. It's a high standard. It's a standard that I often fail. I assume that you have instances in mind where you fail. But this is what God has called us to. And this is why we need the grace of God. Ain't that right, brother? This is why we need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to to speak the language of Zion. To speak the language of that new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, into a perishing and dark world whose language is most often foul and profane. Bible scholars tell us that among the rabbis of Paul's day, salt was a metaphor of wisdom, for wisdom. So when he says seasoned with salt there, the Bible is calling us not only to walk wisely, to behave wisely, but to also speak wisely. It's wisdom that helps us to know how to speak graciously. Wisdom seasons the graciousness. Or to put it another way around, a lack of gracious speech indicates a lack of wisdom. So at this point, we may ask ourselves some questions as Christians. I have five, a couple of them, two or three parts, so like 12. (laughs) Number one, do I have a reputation for speaking and acting both wisely and graciously? Do I have a reputation for both speaking and acting both wisely and graciously? Number two, right out of verse six. Do I always speak graciously in every situation? Do I always speak graciously in every situation? Number three, am I acting according to God's wisdom or man's? Am I acting according to God's wisdom or man's? Number four, when we think about the collective reputation of the Christian church, capital C, church, or of our church, ARC. Collectively, do we act wisely and speak graciously? And what part do I have as an individual in that collective reputation? What's my part to play? Number five. Or are we prone to an opposite problem? Are we prone to disobey God by failing to speak at all of his grace or to speak graciously in times of need. There are two sides of the horse to fall off of. Not speaking at all when we should and speaking poorly when we should. And just so you know, you will know, this is not 
Thabiti making pronouncements from on high. I've spent the last several months thinking about my own online presence and blogging and tweeting, what's edifying, what's not. I've been helped and pushed to think about what of my online presence reflects poorly or well on you, the church, this church, or the church at large. And it's been sobering to try and think really hard with the Bible open about why I might RT to retweet this or why I might put it this way, sharp, rather than wrapping my hammers in pillows. I think that's something that should fall upon all of us. If we have a social media footprint of any size, is Colossians 4, 5, and 6 defining how we engage in that medium? And of course, this applies to all speech and all other behavior. So not just social media, but maybe you're not on social media and, and maybe you are bludgeoning your neighbors with words or treating them poorly in some way. How does this come home to you? This question of living wisely and speaking graciously. Is that our reputation? Is that your reputation? Let's pray for each other in this. Let's pray earnestly for each other in this. For while we live in a world where we must speak, we must also speak well in the world. And if I believe my Bible, like James chapter 3, it ain't easy. This little member, this little part of our body, James says is set on fire from hell. We create forest fires with this little, this little member. This little member, like a rudder, turns the course of our whole life like a ship in the ocean. This little thing that we don't think of until we bite it is full of fire, full of poison, full of death, unless instructed by Christ to speak life and grace and healing. Let's pray for each other in this. So we've got two actions and we've got two attitudes that define those actions that help us to bear faithful witness in the world. But now we must keep in mind our audience, our audience. That's our third point. Our verses point us to an important audience for our behavior and our speech. Verse five uses the word outsiders. And verse six refers to each person. The verses turn us, notice, away from ourselves to consider others. We don't live just for ourselves. We don't speak, beloved, just to express our mind or I get things off my chest. In a world that is deeply darkened, in need of light, God intends to use our speech in a deep and profound way. Our lives are in a very fundamental sense meant for others, not ourselves. Outsider is the word the Bible sometimes uses to refer to people who do not follow Jesus as their Lord. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you've never repented of your sins, You've never confessed that Jesus died for your sins and that you believe he rose again from the grave. And you have never sort of trusted that his death and resurrection 
is what will repair the broken relationship between you and God because of your sin. And if you've never decided that you're going to follow Jesus as your Lord and your God who takes away your sins and who will bring you safely home to heaven and reconcile you to God, the Bible here now is talking about you. It refers to you as an outsider. Now, in our culture, that's, that's not a very polite term. I mean, we, we don't like in and out, us and they. But God fundamentally divides the entire human race between inside and outside. Those who are in his grace, his kindness, and those who are outside of it. Those who are in his love, and those who are outside it. Those who have received his forgiveness, and those who have not. Those who have a place in the kingdom of heaven, and those who are shut outside of the kingdom of heaven because of their sin. The most fundamental distinction to make in the human race isn't ethnicity and culture and class and gender. The most fundamental distinction that God makes between us, all of us having descended from Adam and Eve, is this distinction of whether we're in or we're out. And here's the, one, here's the, here's the thing. To be outside the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, is to in fact be in a kind of hell now and an eternal hell then. You are missing all that God is and and all that God gives in his kindness and his goodness to those who believe on him. The Bible wants you to understand that to be outside is a horribly dangerous thing. And should you die outside of the grace of God and die outside of the forgiveness of God and die outside of the love of God, you will then face God as your eternal judge. And the sentence will be guilty And the judgment will be hell forever. For you will suffer the anger, the holy anger of God forever. The question you should ask yourself is how do I go from outside to inside? How do I come in out of the rain? How do I come in out of the danger? How do I escape the wrath of God that is coming upon the world? And the Bible's answer is really quite wonderful and really quite simple. You confess your sins to God. You admit to God what, you already, what God already knows about you, what he knows about us all, that we are sinners. And you turn away from a life of sin. You give attention to your walk. You were walking away from God in sin. Now you turn to walk with God in faith, trusting that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And what you should do right now is ask God for the grace to repent of your sin, to believe in Jesus, and to follow him. All those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we're saved. Christ suffers God's judgment. He takes our place on the cross. That's what the cross is about. He's dying in the place of sinners. And he he not only dies a physical death and is buried for three days, but three days later, God raises him from the grave. And the resurrection is to prove that God has accepted his sacrifice. The resurrection is to prove that God has defeated death. The resurrection is to prove that we, by trusting in Christ, will live forever with him. Christ is alive right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for those who trust in him. And if you believe in Christ, here's the miracle that Paul describes in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Everything that's happened to Jesus happens to you. By faith, you spiritually are united to Jesus 
so that when he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. Christ will live in you and you will live in Christ never to be separated again. Always on the inside of him and him on the inside of you. Never to be an outsider to God's love. So beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That's our message to you. This is, in the most concentrated way, the light that we want to shine in the world. Of all the speaking that we do, this is the most important speaking that we do. Is tell you about God's love in Jesus Christ and what he's done to rescue you from judgment and to plead with you. Believe in him. Follow him so that you might be saved. And so, beloved, if you're Christians, we must live in such a way as to keep an eye on outsiders, not to treat them like outsiders, you understand. So any kind of Christian standoffishness and us them and looking down on people who are not Christians is an attitude foreign to the Bible, foreign to the New Testament. We make this clear distinction between insiders and outsiders so that we might help outsiders find their way inside. It's counterintuitive, but but drawing a distinction around the membership of the church from the world is part of how we invite the world to come see that God is good, to come experience his love, to come experience the alternative to a dying, decaying world and find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Blur those distinctions, you actually blur the message. Blur those distinctions, you actually suggest to the world that there are no alternatives. That we are more or less like you, only maybe a little bit more moral. That's not Christianity, beloved. Christianity is we're just like you, dead in sin, until Christ miraculously raised us to newness of life. And 5 and 6 of Colossians 4 is telling us to demonstrate the difference. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech be gracious to every person. According to verse 6, God seems to think that we ought to be able to answer, notice, each person with grace. First Peter puts it this way. First Peter 3.15 says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What we've been singing all morning. Then it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, all the apostles agree. We exist in this world to give answers. A reason for why we are hopeful. When, when we see Klansmen march on the university campuses, and, and when we see men who are out of their mind in sin drive cars into crowds, and why we're hopeful when, when, even though we pray for our president, we're grieved at things that strike us as quite foolish. Like, off-the-cuff threats about nuclear war. We're not without hope in this context. We are the hope. We are the light. We are the people God has left in the world to bear witness to the answer. And we're called to do it with gentleness and respect, according to Peter, or with graciousness, according to Paul. And beloved, this really should mark the difference between 
my blogging and tweeting, your blogging and tweeting, my preaching, your speaking, my conversation with neighbors, your conversations with neighbors, this really should mark the difference between us and how the world talks. I decided uh, at the end of December that I would spend 2017 following only women on social media. It's been a good experience. I've learned a lot and I'm still learning. And I'm a little bit grieved that I haven't followed more women for a longer period of time. You guys think differently. <laughs> you see some things that men need to see sometimes. But here's what I've noticed. Well, here's what I've noticed. Women are human. In all the beauty and the fallenness, women are, are human. I think I was thinking I would follow women in part so I can get away from the argumentativeness of, of Christian men and and. Reform men in particular, man. I was like, you know what, let me, let me, there must be peace on the internet. Let me follow women, right? Y'all fight as much as we do. And as, and as viciously as we do sometimes. <laughs> I feel my help coming. <laughs> but I also think I see a difference between Christian women and non-Christian women for the most part, in the way we talk. And that distinction should always be there, clear and magnified in my life, in your life, in all of our speaking. God intends the outsider to see in the insider something winsome and gracious and supernatural so that they might be compelled to come inside. Foolish behavior and rude speech blur and hide what God means for them to see in us. But wise behavior and kind speech make it plain that Christians have been with Jesus. Which brings us to our aims, number four. Well, another word for aims is goals. Our living wisely and speaking graciously are to have an evangelistic and apologetic purpose. Notice verse five says, making the best use of the time. And verse 6 says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. These are, these are the two aims or goals in our text. The best use of the time. Or in some translations, making the most of every situation. In other words, we're being exhorted here as people who behave wisely not to fritter away one of the most precious resources God gives us. Time. And especially not to do that in relationship with outsiders. So to behave wisely toward outsiders is being defined by making the best use of the time, not wasting the opportunities we have with people who are not yet Christians to speak to them in such a way as we begin to lead them to Christ. Just made up an illustration here. Imagine that you and a friend who's not a Christian are, are on the bus and you're traveling somewhere on the bus. And tragically, the bus is in an accident. And you, the Christian, and your non-Christian friend die in that accident. For you, it will be a celebration if you're a Christian. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for our non-Christian friend in that moment is to finally be cut off from any possibility of being saved from their sins and the judgment of God. And they will enter eternity without Jesus, which is to say they will enter eternity without one 
who has taken away their sins and provided them righteousness so that they can be with God. In that moment, your two fates, your two futures, are sealed forever. Now what should you have been talking about on that bus ride? Could be talking about the Redskins and rejoicing as one brother on Twitter did that the Cowboys are going to go 0-6 the first six games. We, we could be talking very passionately about Charlottesville and all that's going on in Charlottesville and, and places like it. Or we could be wringing our hands in anxiety about North Korea and nuclear war and all those things. And it's not that you never talk about those things. There's a place for that. But if that's all we ever talk about, and we don't talk about Jesus, we are not making the best use of our time. We're not using the time in the way that has potential for making an eternal difference for that person who is right now outside of the kingdom of heaven. And so it doesn't matter if we win them to our perspective on racism or white supremacy or Black Lives Matter. It doesn't matter if we win them to our perspective about North Korea and nuclear arms. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Surely as Christians, we would not want to give in exchange for our friends' souls winning a lesser conversation in the place of the gospel. So we are called to make the best use of our time, which I think means living in light of the fact that time is fleeting. Time is passing away. Time flies. There are all kinds of cliches to talk about this immense truth that you and I won't live forever in this world. We'll live forever in the next. But where we live in the next it's determined by whether or not we know Jesus. So we want to make the best use of our time with our, our non-Christian friends. And again, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we're glad that you're here joining us in this conversation. And, and I just want to say, I realize that as Christians, we may sometimes seem quite pushy to you. I, I admit we don't always share well. We're talking here about being always gracious. We, we're not. We're not always gracious. But, but I hope you see that our not sharing with you, even in a way that feels intrusive to you, that our not sharing with you is a far worse crime against you than our sharing with you poorly. I mean, would you rather us tell you about heaven and hell and what Jesus has done to rescue you from such a fate? Or act as if you have all the time in the world? and blind you from the approaching truth of God's judgment with vain and empty worldly pursuits. Which would you rather? Our just have a good time with you in a mindless way or our sometimes making it awkward by saying, you know, bro, you still hadn't repented of your sins. You are still in danger of God's judgment. What are you waiting on? Time is short. Hell is forever. But so also is heaven. Choose Christ. And so while we do apologize for the ways we fail, we're sorry, but we're not sorry. Our God has called us to tell you the truth. And I hope that you would be able to hear the truth and receive it 
even if we tell it poorly. That's what a wise person would do. So the first thing is we want to use the time well. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. But secondly, now, we want to be able to answer each person. Notice again the specificity of verse 6. We want to speak graciously so that we will know how we ought to answer each person. We are called to consider, notice, not people abstractly, but particular persons. When we speak with those persons, we do not speak with abstract stories or faceless people or composite pictures. Those are called stereotypes. Every person has his or her own unique story. Answering them well will depend on knowing what their story is. And sometimes in the kinds of conversations going on this past week in our culture, we can talk past one another because we're not talking to one another. We can hear someone say a particular word and then we assume they must mean by that word what some other people mean by that word. Then we're off responding to what other people mean rather to, than to what the person before us meant by that word. This is important because our culture is filled with and run by buzzwords and sound bites. There are precious few places where a person can be heard. I think Colossians 4, 6 calls the church of Jesus Christ, the community of God's people, to actually be a community where persons with real questions and needs can actually be heard, considered individually, sat with as a person. See, the result of gracious speech and wise living is a welcoming, listening community. And as we listen to others, we will begin to understand how to answer them. Perhaps that's one of the reasons the Bible says to Christians be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. We tend to reverse those things. We are often quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to get angry. And we wonder why the whole world's on fire. When we are like that, when we are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry, God gives us the wisdom and the insight we need to answer others well. So let's conclude a couple applications. How do we work this out in our daily lives? What should we do? Uh, these are suggestions, a few things as we close our time together. Number one, I think there are five of them with multiple parts. Six of them, Peter, with multiple parts. Number one, let us commit as Christians, to regular examination of our walks and our speech before the Lord and before others in the body of Christ. A lot of our failures in walking and talking come from a failure or refusal to evaluate ourselves against the Scripture and to do that with the fellowship and accountability of other Christians. Number two. Let us never, or let us commit to never saying anything to someone else we would not say to Jesus. If we are Christians, we would never seek to speak rudely and cruelly to our Lord. Let that be the standard by which we talk and speak to people made in His image. How would this statement change, we should ask ourselves, if we were talking to Jesus. So, beloved, whether or not we're talking to Jesus, he's listening. He's seeing. Number three, 
Let us be careful to speak to people we know and generally avoid inflammatory conversation with people we do not know. Let that be a rule on social media where everyone seems to show up and comment as if they know you from grade school. You can't answer each person well when you don't know their story. And the anonymity of social media allows people to hide their true story. And you can spend a whole lot of time talking to somebody who acts as if they are a biblical scholar or some other kind of scholar on this or that issue, and they are 19 years at home, at home with their mama. But you don't know that because they can create a persona online. And there you have put your pearls before swine. Let's not do that. If we don't know them, let's not feel obligated to answer at any length. If we do know them, let's hear their story. Which brings me to number four. If we do know the person, let us take the opportunity to meet with them personally rather than engage them in an impersonal, context-free space like social media. And if we do engage them there, the moment we feel like, ah, that's awkward or that's off or I'm feeling a kind of way, let's stop with the social media and let's talk personally. Get coffee. Have dinner. Call them up. There's a hierarchy for communication. In person is best. By phone is next. In writing is third. On social media is last. Number five, let us be careful with angry speech. The Bible says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We may be sure that a lasting feature of anger is the production of rash speech. We may be sure that if we're angry, if we're in our fields, we stand a good chance of not speaking the way Jesus would have us speak or acting the way he would have us act. Now I want to I play with this one just a little bit. Because the Bible tells us not only to avoid anger, to be angry but not sin, to be careful with anger, but at the same time, there are passages in the Scripture where Christians are called to speak in very forthright, confrontational ways. So you remember Paul writing to Titus, in Crete. Titus is in a, a rough island nation, and, 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 and Paul can say things like, look, even the, the Cretan philosophers will say about Cretans that they are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and I mean, just a whole bunch of things. We're like, ooh, can a Christian say that? And then Paul says, and this is true. And then he says to Titus, rebuke them sharply. Now, how do you hold together, let your, grace, let your speech always be gracious with rebuke them sharply? This is the same author. He's not contradicting himself. He envisions Christians speaking in such a way that we are ministering to grace to others, but he's also envisioning circumstances where something like sharp rebuke is offered to others. How do you hold those together? Well, I think you hold them together this way, that all of our speaking to others, whether we think of it as gracious in that kind sense, or whether it's a kind of rebuke that has to be offered, must be offered in love with a redemptive purpose. There's a massive difference between what Paul means by sharp rebuke and what other people mean by getting a load off their chest. 
There's a massive difference between lashing out at people with, with the goal of, of, of hurting them or making them look foolish or, or some other kind of less than redemptive goal and speaking out to people even in sharp, direct, clear ways about their wrong with the goal of seeing them now brought over to the side of right. That's how I think you hold it together. And so if you're in Colossians, you look back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes there, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with this practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge at the image of his creator. And so even when we speak in a righteous indignation, we must speak with a redemptive goal. We must speak in that sense. The rebuke itself is grace. To correct an erring brother or sister, even sharply, with the goal of redemption, is a kind of grace. So let us be careful with angry speech. Finally, let's do our evangelism as it's described in verses 5 and 6. If you remember, you go back to verses 2 to 4. That's kind of what Paul has in mind. He's been asking for prayer that he might speak the gospel plainly as he ought to. I think he still has that train of thought running through verses 5 and 6. And so our evangelism ought to be slow and in person. Listening long and answering well. Modeling Christian behavior so that by word and deed, we provide a winsome alternative to the noise in the world. I think 5 and 6 applies to this evangelistic call that's upon our lives, it applies to our whole life. And we might conclude with this final thought. We're not actually ready to speak loudly and publicly in the world until we're actually walking wisely and speaking graciously. Until then, silence is better. But don't invite yourself to a lifelong silence when you know God calls us all to grow in wisdom and grace, to speak for him. So our brother Joseph Williams and family are moving, guess where? To Charlottesville. His brother to teach as a professor at UVA. It's a real world. Now you know a real person there if you didn't before. And we pray that he would go and Erica would go and the kids would go with the spirit of this text and the hope of the gospel to bear this kind of witness there the way you guys have borne it among us. Uh, Who knew that God was calling them to Charlottesville for such a time as this? He's calling us too for such a time as this to bear faithful witness. May he give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, let me be the first in line to confess many failings at redeeming the time, at speaking graciously, many failings in walking wisely. Let me be the first to confess many instances of conversation that have not kept eternity in view, that were perhaps lost opportunities to reach the lost soul. Oh, Lord, help us. We we don't wish to, and we don't believe you wish us, to labor under a log of guilt. 
We don't believe that following you is about burden. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. You free us. And so with great freedom because of Christ and his righteousness and his sacrifice in our place, with great freedom and great zeal and great hope, Lord, allow us to take into our hearts the the high calling of these two verses and to live for them, to strive for them, to, to press toward them in faith and hope and love and in the power of your spirit. Perhaps it is the case that some have felt convicted, Help them to understand that conviction comes from you, your spirit, not the preacher. And help them to then respond to you and to your word with an open heart and a mind ready to embrace your call upon their lives. That's whether they are people who are hearing for the first time that Jesus died for them and rose for them and that they may live forever in your love through him. And until then, they are outsiders. Lord, let that conviction turn their hearts to you in faith or whether it's a Christian, a new Christian, or a Christian of many years who sees a word like always, almost in neon, and recognizes that many previous readings of that verse, they had not seen that word. And now they see that word and they see their lives and they feel the conviction and the shortcoming. Give them grace to know that their sins are nailed to the cross. And give them grace to know that you will help us all to speak and live as you have called us to. So Lord, we pray, command what you wish and grant what you command. In Jesus' name, amen.